I am so glad to be with you this morning. Um, so we are going to go through a, uh, a series for the next couple of weeks. Uh, it starts this week. Next week will be the conclusion. This week is called Slaves to Rebellion. Next week's called Slaves to Righteousness. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on one passage of Scripture together for the next couple of weeks. So if you will, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 15 to 23. Again, that's Romans chapter 6. Let me begin reading in verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, God, we do love you. We do praise you. I ask, Lord, that you would take this difficult topic, this difficult thing to discuss, and that, Lord, you would use it to make us more like your Son. That you would take this passage of Scripture and that your Spirit would so be at work in this place and in the hearts and the lives and the minds of those who hear in this building or through the live stream, that God, you would do something with us. Father, you would make us uncomfortable. You would make us rejoice. You would make us feel ready to hit our knees. You would make us feel ready to stand and rejoice. That, Father, you would make this your church. 
ready to receive a call to action. It's in your Son's name, Jesus, we do ask these things and for His sake. Amen. I had the privilege and honor this past week to take our college and career uh, ministry to the beach. To Panama City, we went down there and we suffered for the Lord. And while we were there, the weather was perfect, the weather was beautiful. Not too many came back with sunburns, although some, I think, some of them, I think, had the, the really bad tan lines around their eyes from where their sunglasses had been. But we had a, a wonderful time, a wonderful week, spending uh, time together, enjoying each other's company. But we also took the opportunity, while we were there, to commit ourselves to study. We had devotion every morning where we were reading in uh, 1 John. That was every morning we did that. And every evening we came together and we discussed a topic of great importance in our nation right now. We watched a documentary. And by the way, I cannot recommend this documentary highly enough uh, of all the places you can find it now, you can stream it uh, from Netflix, which is very surprising given the landscape of what this documentary covers. This documentary is called American Gospel, Christ Alone. And in that documentary, they interview several preachers and experts, and what they do is they diagnose the condition, the landscape of what's going on in the American gospel today. And I thought it was a fitting way to open that what we see in America today, the American gospel we see today is a very conceited Christianity. Our Christianity, our gospel, is focused on itself. If you care to follow along in your study guides, there will be opportunities for you to write in words if you have pens to follow along, to write notes. But I want you to know that when we watch that documentary, we recognize that we have a very conceited Christianity. That's the first point. And in this conceited Christianity, it highlighted and focused specifically on the word of faith gospel. That the word of faith gospel preaches all over America, but not just America. They're taking the word of faith out into all parts of the world. And they say this. They say that the point of Christianity... The point of the gospel is to make you healthy, wealthy, and to prosper. That's being preached out of the American pulpits. It's being shared all over the world. It's a shameful thing to say that perhaps even the word of faith movement has become the face of Christianity. And that 
when people think of Christianity, they think of the Word of Faith movement. And it's influenced all over, but it's, it's hitting hard in pulpits. I'll share with you another trip that we went on with the students. Uh, we went to the Passion Conference in January. And when we went there, we heard from several speakers, some of them good, some of them very difficult to hear. But one sermon in particular stood out to me. It was from Genesis 26. And Genesis 26 is the only chapter in the Bible that's dedicated to uh, the story of Isaac. Isaac's and other places in the Bible accounts. But Genesis 26 is about his story, and it's only his story. And when it comes to Genesis 26, it starts off in verses 1 through 5. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to, you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oaths that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we recognize that the blessing that came through the line of Abraham, through Isaac, that is the story of Jesus. That Jesus is the blessing for the land. We see here in the opening of, of Genesis 26, is talking about how God will be there. How God will not forsake. How God is present in every area of your life. And that He will send a Savior. That's what Genesis 26 is about. And so as we heard these passages, we were gearing up to hear a gospel-centered message that focused on Christ. And what we heard instead was when the speaker skipped to verses 12. She said, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there, encamped in the valley of Gerar, settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. What we heard, instead of a gospel-centered message, one that focused on Christ, one that focused on the presence of God, one that focused on what he would do to redeem mankind, to save us from sin and death. What we heard on that day was, do you see how much stuff Isaac had? It said he had servants, more grain. He was rich and possessed flocks. Even the Philistines envied him. God wants to give you those blessings is what we heard. It's all about stuff. It's all about things. And 
just as the Philistines had filled in Abraham's wells. You've got to, fill, uh, you've got to dig out the junk in your life so that God will bless you with riches, with health and wealth and prosperity. That's not the gospel message of the Bible. That's a conceited Christianity. A very conceited Christianity. And it reflects a style of study right now. These are big terms. You'll see them up on the screen. Uh, These are big terms, but there's a, a style of study called exegesis. There's a style of study called eisegesis. Let me explain what those are. Exegesis comes to the Bible and it says, when I read this scripture, when I read this Bible, the message that it has for me exits the very words on the page and it impacts my heart and my life where I am. Exegesis is the words are powerful. Because they're the words of God. And they impact my life. Eisegesis is I have thoughts. I have ideas. I have a message that I feel I need to hear. And when I read the Bible, I look for my idea. You see the difference? The American gospel is filled with a conceited Christianity, one that looks for our ideals, our our desires, rather than seeing what the gospel, what the scripture has for us. And that's not just in the pulpit, it's the climate of our entire culture. Wouldn't you agree that the, the whole culture right now, the whole nation, is a, a self-focused nation? Everybody is thinking about themselves first, primarily. And against the culture that we live in today, and against the backdrop of what's in pulpits today, that's where we're going to couch Romans 6, 15 through 23. And there is a controversial word that we're going to come into, a very controversial word, and that's the next point, point two. The controversial word. In the Bible, there is a word that appears 130 times in 120 verses. And that word is doulos. You're going to see it up on the screen. That's how it appears in the Greek. Doulos. So what does doulos mean? Like I said, it appears 130 times in the Bible. In the New Testament. And the first time it appears is in Matthew 8, 9. Let me read that to you very quickly. Matthew 8, 9 says this, 
For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, that's the word doulos, to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's the first time it appears in the New Testament. The last time it appears in the New Testament is in Revelation 22, 6. I'm going to read that for you as well. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants, to show his doulos, what must soon take place. The problem is this, that the word doulos doesn't mean servant. There are at least six words in the Greek language for the word servant. At least six. And doulos is not one of them. Doulos in the Greek means slave. Let me give you a a brief history of, of, of how the, the translators came up with servant. Um, in Christ's day, you had the Greek Septuagint. That's what people read, or that's what people would have, would have had uh, after, uh, during the, the times of the apostles. Well, in 405, St. Jerome took the Greek Septuagint and he interpreted it to the Latin language. And the Latin word for doulos is service, which is, of course, where we get the English word servant. When Wycliffe in 1382 and the King James Version translated the Bible, they translated from the Latin, from the Latin Vulgate. So when they came to these words, they had service. So they had servant that came about. In the year 1516, a guy named Erasmus took that Latin Vulgate and said, we need to get it back to the Greek language so that our interpretations become better. So he took the Latin, put it back into Greek. When Luther came along in 1522 and translated the Bible from, uh, from, into the German language, he used Erasmus's Greek text, and all to this day, we translate from the Greek text, when they come to those words, they come to the word doulos, they don't come to the Latin word service, they come to the word doulos, so why, if we come to the word doulos, why do they translate it servant in those places, rather than slave? in those places. And I'll make this case. In America, we're very well acquainted with the idea of slavery. If you close your eyes and try to get a mental picture of what slavery looks like, what we will think of is the injustices done against our black brothers and sisters 
putting them into bondage and into slavery and the evils that took place there. So I think as, a, as Americans, we look at the word slave, even the ones who are translating the Scripture, they look at doulos and they think, that's, that's not the image that comes to mind when I think of our relationship to Christ. And so they translate it servant. Though we don't have a slavery that is tied into racism as much anymore today, it's been outlawed, it's wrong, it's evil. Everyone knows that it is wrong and to be despised and hated. We have a different slavery today in human trafficking. Children being carted away from families to be abused, to be violated, to have acts of violence used against them. When we think of slavery, none of us thinks of anything good. And that is why I feel that when they come to these passages... They don't translate doulos, slave. They translate it as servant. Or even as bond servant, which uh, I don't even know what that is. In John chapter 8, verses 34, though, we see a, a contrast. And we heard these verses read earlier. It says this, John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a doulos. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Verses, uh, in John, John, same gospel, chapter 15, verse 15. They translate it differently, though. It says, No longer do I call you servants. That's doulos. For a servant, doulos, does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So why is it translated servant in some places? Why is it translated slave in others? I believe it's because in the times you find it translated as slave, it's referring to our connection with sin. And when it's translated servant, it's talking about our relationship with God. But I'm going to submit something to you. I'm afraid... That that's eisegesis. We must be willing to take the Scripture for what it says. And we must be able to see God's hand at work throughout all of these things. So what we're going to do now is we're going to dive into Romans chapter 6, where it makes no bones about calling us a slave to God. 
And by the way, they do that in Romans as well. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's doulos. By the time we get to Romans chapter 6, the veil is pulled back and we see doulos for what it is intended to mean. Let me read these verses to you again, but this time instead of reading the English when I come to the word doulos, I'm going to say doulos. And you read along in your English translation. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient doulos, you are doulos of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once do loss of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become do loss of righteousness i am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as do loss to impurity and the lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as doulos to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were doulos of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become doulos of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we come to our relationship with this word doulos and how it impacts our lives, what we're going to zero in and focus on today is the fact that we are all captive-born slaves. All of us. From the moment it says go, we are captive-born slaves. And we are slaves, like Romans 6 tells us, to sin and we are slaves to death and today in our sermon it's slaves to rebellion we're going to focus in on what does it look like to be a slave entangled and ensnared in sin what does that look like And so what does it imply for the world who is still in it? Next week, we're going to flip the script and we're going to say, for a Christian, what does it look like to be a slave to righteousness? A slave to God? 
Romans 6, 15 tells us what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to the church in Rome. And so to a bunch of Christians, he is asking them after a lengthy discourse that should you still desire to sin? Should you still desire to do those things that had been your master before Christ came along? Should that still be something you want to do if you are a Christian? Should it still be a desire of your heart? And he says, may it never be, or by no means. The Greek there is meganoita. I like that. Meganoita. Never may it be. No Christian church. Our desire should not be to be ensnared and wrapped up in sin, entangled in slavery to sin. No, Christian, by no means, meganoita. No. And to the Christian, they look at it and they say, of course, we don't want to be slaves to sin. And it's because the Christian knows that sin was our master. Sin used to be the one who held the chains. Sin used to be the one that cracked the whip. Sin used to be the one who held us tightly in its grip that leads to death. But Christian, our life has been called out of that bondage. And that is the best news we can have. We've been called out of bondage. No! Stay away from sin. Avoid it. It is a cruel master. Well, what did it look like? Where did it come from? Sin started in the Garden of Eden. All of us here, I believe, know the story. Adam and Eve were created in a perfect relationship with God. Adam and Eve walked daily with God. They were told not to do one thing. And that's what they did. And when they did that, sin entered the world. But because Adam is our representative It didn't just stay with Adam. Romans 5, verses 12 through 14 tell us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. We sit there and we can recognize and understand fully that sin started in the garden, but it didn't stay in the garden. And even though none of us reached out our hand to pluck the fruit and to eat it, 
we are all still guilty of that same sin. And that's who our Master is when we are born into this world. Psalm 51.5 We are brought forth in iniquity. In sin. Our mother conceived us. And to be born into sin is to be born its slave. But the Christian struggles against sin. Meganoita. May it never be. Because we see its cruelty. Sin gives a promise of empty pleasures. Sin gives the idea that you can work and you can achieve and you can have happiness and you can have joy and you can have wealth and you can have prosperity if you work hard enough. Sounds oddly like the false gospel that's coming out of a lot of pulpits. But sin is a yoke. And when I say yoke, what I'm describing is a, um, it's a, a tool, it's an instrument that was used. They put it on the back of cattle or a donkey or an animal. And that yoke was attached to a plow. And they made the animal pull the plow while the master was at the back plowing the field so that he could reap the benefits of the effort of the animal. The yoke of sin puts us under its bondage, into its slavery, and says, now work and work and work and do and do and do. And, and one day you'll be happy. Bible does have a word to say about that. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11 says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained in me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart 
from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. To be a slave to sin is to be under that yoke of bondage. And they promise you everything they can. If you work, and if you want to have money, get it by any means necessary. Work hard to get that money. Work hard to get the promotion. Work hard to achieve whatever end you desire. Push, work, do it, and you'll be satisfied and you'll be happy. But the reality is, we could gain the whole world, and it would still never satisfy a heart that only needs God. See, we're not made to be slaves to sin. In the original, in the original map, in the original plan, Adam and Eve were made to have a right and perfect and good relationship with God. And that's what we still desire today. Nothing in the world, nor the entire world itself, nor galaxies, the universe, none of that will ever, ever fill the void that is left because our relationship has been broken with God and we are now slaves to sin. The pleasures of the world are bankrupt. The pleasures of the world are all vanity. And the Christian looks at the pleasures of the world. They look at the sins of the world. We look at all of the things that people can take comfort in knowing and in doing. We realize it will never satisfy. It will only lead to your death. An example that I came across several years ago now that I think is fitting help us understand the cruelty of being enslaved to sin, the cruelty of being promised good and even wanting that promised good only to have it forsake us and kill us. Is, um, in Eskimo villages, they would often have wolves that would come to attack and to slaughter people in their villages, any animals that they did have. And so in order to catch that wolf, in order to kill that wolf, they realized that what the wolf desired was the blood of its victims. It wanted to eat. It was looking for something to consume. And so what they would do is they would take a knife, they would dip that knife in, blood 
And of course, the blood would freeze on the blade. They would put the knife in the ground and they would leave it. The next morning, when they would come back, that wolf would be dead. Because this is what the wolf would do the wolf would go up to that blade, smelling the blood, thinking that's what it wants, that's its desire. And it would start to lick the blade. And soon all that blood that they had dipped it in would be gone because the wolf would would eat it all, would consume it all. What the wolf didn't realize is that the wolf was cutting itself all along the way. And so the wolf would continue to feed there at the knife, not knowing that it was draining itself of its life's blood. That's slavery to sin. It's a master who says, I've got good for you. I have what you want. Come here and take it. And we pour ourselves into that. And if we're a slave to sin, we will work ourselves trying to seek a pleasure that is only going to end up taking our lives. After all of our effort, after all of our energy, Romans 6.23 tells us what we receive. For the wages of sin is death. All of us can agree All of us can look at slavery to sin and we can all say, I hate it. I despise it. May it never be. Meganoita. I don't want that. And everything in us should make us want to fight and struggle against that. And thank God, slavery to sin is not the end of the story. Because the Christian's reality, the Christian's truth, is that we have a call of liberty. The Christian has a call of liberty. We hate bondage to sin, our proclamation is freedom. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Romans 6, 17 and 18 tell us that. It's unashamed of it. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. We have been set free from sin. The believer looks at slavery to sin and says, that's not my story. My story is a call to liberty. My story is a call to freedom. My story is a call to having those chains broken through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's our story. And 
And we look all over the Bible. And we see in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21 tells us this. And he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Christ Jesus, there is freedom from a slavery that leads to death. In Christ Jesus, we are broken From that bondage. But notice the language of Paul in Romans 6, chapter 17 through 18. I read them to you earlier. It says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He even makes it more profound when he says it this way in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So in our American ideologies, part of us might even sit there and say, we've been set free from sin, hallelujah, amen. But we're still a slave. We're still a slave to God. And we might sit there and that might swell up in us a sense of of ingratitude. I just have another master. But understand, Christian, you have another master. It's not a drudgery. It's not a grind. It's not a woe is me. It's not a master and a slavery that leads to death. No. Its end is eternal life. So what does slavery to God look like? What does slavery to righteousness look like? We hate slavery. We proclaim freedom and liberty. And that's what we proclaim today. But we also proclaim, I am a slave to God Almighty. What does that look like? 
Come back next week. And we're going to dive into these verses again. We're going to look at what it means to be a slave to God. Let me pray for us. And I think we need to worship, don't you? I think we need to worship a God who has set us free from the bondage of sin and slavery and has brought us under His household. Most gracious Heavenly Father, oh God, we love You. Our Master, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Liberator, we praise You. We adore You. God's slavery to sin is nothing that we need. It's nothing that we want. Slavery to sin is death. Slavery to sin is cruel. Thank You that through the precious blood of Your Son, Jesus, we can have freedom and we can proclaim liberty from that evil and awful master that is sin. But God, even more than that, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that we can proclaim not only freedom from slavery to sin, but we can claim that God is our master that You are our Lord. That now, we are slaves to God. Father, I pray that these words will become a sweet testimony in our hearts and our minds. It's in Your Son's name, Jesus, we do ask these things. And for His sake, Amen.